Good morning. Our scripture this morning is from Ezekiel chapter one. In my 30th year, in the fourth month of the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kiba River, the heavens opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the, pro the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kiba River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was on him. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed like brandished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. All four of them had faces and wings, and the wings of one touched the wings of another. Each one went straight ahead, and they did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a human being, and on the right side, each had the face of a lion, and on the left, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. They each had two wings spreading out upward. Each wing touched that of the creature on either side, and each had two other wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit, wherever the spirit would go, they would go, without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like the burning coals of fire, or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright, and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures spread back and forth like flashes of lightning. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like topaz, and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not change direction as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. When the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved. And when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go and the wheels would rise along with them because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When the creatures moved, they also moved. When the creatures stood still, they also stood still. And when the creatures rose from, from the ground, the wheels rose along with them because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked something like a vault, sparkling like crystal and awesome. Under the vault, their wings were stretched out one toward the other, and each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from above the vault over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. Above the vault over their heads was what looked like a throne of lapis lazula, and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like a glowing metal, as a 
full of fire, and that from there down he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance above him and around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down. I heard the voice of one speaking. And thus ends the reading of one of the weirdest passages in the Bible. Which begins the second longest book of the Bible and proceeds 20-something chapters of unremitten judgment. Before we dive into that, I want to encourage you to get one of these devotionals for your quiet times over the next several weeks as we go through the book of Ezekiel. They're available outside, and um, you, they can be picked up if you're watching online during the week. Um, yeah, I'm going to jump in. One of the things that I promise this, we, I will get to this weird scripture. I'm just track with me for a minute. One of the questions that we need to ask ourselves as we start to enter and look at this book is a question that really should haunt us as Christian believers pretty consistently, uh, which is something like, why do people believe in a weightless God? Right? So, um, there's been some discussion about like the rise of the nuns and all this literature that they're now like 24% of the American population or 21% I think it is. But, but these are not atheists. These are people who believe in God. They believe they have a spirituality. Some of them even say God is very important to them, right? So you have spiritual people. You, you also have people who um, we used to call, we would call nominal people. That is, that if you ask them if they're a Christian, they, they accept that label. They're like, yeah, I'm a Christian. Um, but if you took the evidence and counter evidence and tried to convict them of being one, it would be very difficult. Right? That is, they're, they're, they're Christian in name only. That's what nominal means, right? The third is, is that there's—in in surveys done throughout America in American religion, they always ask people this question. Would you say that your religion is very important to you? Right? To which a lot—a very high percentage of people—I want to say it was like 45 percent in one of the last um, surveys—said, yes, my religion is very important to me. Which, <clears throat> I'm going to admit to you, as a fairly disagreeable person, I hate that question. Because it's—it is— vague to the allowing of personal moral preening, right? It's kind of like, what does that mean? God is very important to you. And what it basically means is this. You can say yes to that question, but if the follow-up question was asked this way, are God's commands and knowing him and obeying him decisive for you? You could say no to that question and still feel like you could honestly say yes to the preceding one, is God important to you? There's a huge swath of human beings for whom they convince themselves and they really believe that God is, or Jesus even, is very important to them. But if you actually came to them and said, yes, fine. But is Jesus decisive for you? The answer is no. By word or practice. When, a couple years ago, I, I gave a talk to the kids at um, High Point Christian School, 6th through 8th grade, and I said, listen, there's a very specific reason why a bunch of you, including some of you who will give testimonies about your faith at your eighth grade graduation, will walk away from Jesus in about 20 minutes when you go to public high school, have completely left Jesus two years in, and many of you, um, like, even those many of you who will follow Jesus in college, you'll even, like, go to crew and go on, like, summer, like, project and whatever. By the time you're 32, you might go to church occasionally, but the importance of Jesus in your life, the decisive nature of Jesus as Lord will not be evident. 
And some, some of it is like, like really explainable in terms of outside pressures, right? Like you have the flesh that doesn't really want to be told what to do by God. You have worldliness that is people who are like, ah, don't worry about it. Like that's all stupid, all that religion stuff, right? And there's also just like a lot of worldly intimidation that affects us. But in a lot of ways, what it is also is that our conception of God, the picture of God, the sketch of him that we hold in ourselves, which, okay, just this may be news for some of you, which isn't God, okay, doesn't mature with us as our life becomes more difficult and more complicated and as we move into a more difficult world, right? I mean, you want the faith that we're teaching the five-year-olds to be incredibly simple. Like, if you go into the four-year-old's class, okay, and you sat in there, what you're going to hear is stuff like this. God is—God exists. God is good. God loves you. God has spoken through his word in the Bible, and God— became flesh in Jesus Christ. We sin. We do wrong stuff, right? And you'd be like, all right. And some of you are like, okay, that's a little advanced for me right now. Okay, great. It's a, you can visit that class if you want. Like, be a helper in it. A lot of people learn the basics by coming to church, accepting Jesus, and then go helping in, like, the four-year-olds. And then when they've mastered that content, they become a helper in the five-year-olds. And then you could just work through and get a whole theological education if you didn't grow up going to church, right? Now, However, the problem, though, is, is that as we come into maturity and other things and we're forced to develop, oftentimes we think that the conceptualization of God we've had in our minds previous to this, which again isn't God, is going to be sufficient to answer our questions and to lead us forward and to be decisive for us in the actual life that we really face, and it isn't, okay? One thing that you might call this is conceptual maturity failure. What happens to you when your faith doesn't grow up? What I, what I, I tell eighth graders, what I tell almost anybody is, listen, the sketch you have of God, the, the, like, the picture and image of God that you hold in your mind of what God is like, that you hold right now, especially if you're under 40 or 35, is almost certainly going to be insufficient in the, in the, the uh, next seasons of your life. If you're in eighth grade and you have a conception of what God is like and it hasn't changed pretty substantially by the time you're 16, you'll walk away from your faith. There's no question. Because it has to mature with you. Your, your questions are going to get more complicated. The pressures are going to get more intense. The world that you live in is going to become increasingly complicated. And if your vision of—you you don't rewrite it. It's not like the stuff you learned in fourth grade isn't going to be true anymore. It's that more things are going to be true in more complicated relationships with each other and in ways that have to become more advanced. And if that doesn't happen, then God won't get bigger as you get older. Right? There's this— there's a section on uh, Prince Caspian where Lucy comes to Narnia for the second time, and she's a few years older now, and she meets Aslan for the first time in her new adventure, and, and Aslan is just bigger than he was before. And she says, Aslan, you're bigger. Have you grown? And he says, I haven't grown, little one. You have. She's like, so you're not actually larger? He said, no, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger, right? Grow is meant to be ambiguous in that context, right? If, as if every year you grow as a person, every year you grow as a Christian, every year you don't just get a year older, but you grow developmentally as a person, your picture of God, the sketch in your mind, your conceptualization of God is going to grow. And as it grows and becomes bigger and greater, what, is that, what does that refer to? What it, what it refers to is, is that God becomes increasingly glorious in your mind. The glory of the Lord expands. It's always been that big. Right? And as you grow, it becomes bigger to you. So that when you go from like feeling like nobody likes you at school to actually having something catastrophic happen in your life as an adult, 
right? God was big enough then. And when we get to the third point, he's big enough then. You see, the critical factor is that the conception of God and the glory that you can apprehend relative to God's sovereignty, his absolute ruling in your life, has to meet the challenge each time you meet it in, li- in real life. Because what competes with the glory of God for us, right? It's every, everything that competes with the glory of God is by definition, biblically, an idol, right? It's another God. It's another thing we think will get us where we need to go. And all of those are constantly competing, not with God, but with our internal conception of God, which is the object we really are applying our faith to. Do you understand? You, like, you can't apply your faith directly to God because you have to apply it to something that, like, you have conceptually. So, that, so the problem is then that, that your conception of God and God as he is, you want those as close as they can possibly be. Because you can only understand God, you can only believe in God, you can only be taken with affection for God, you can only be driven by your love for God, you can only be empowered by the joy of God, you can only be strengthened by the glory of God to the extent to which your conception of God is close enough to the one that is, that that conception is glorious. And for a lot of us, like, it just isn't anywhere close to where it has to be to get us where we need to go. Remember, like, Scripture teaches that God as king is what strengthens us. You, the, the, the extent to which you are strengthened by your faith in God is not relative directly to that Jesus is important to you, that you really like him, that you claim that you're a believer, right? Remember it says in Nehemiah that the joy of the Lord, King Yahweh, is your strength. Not Jesus, your special friend. Not like the God you like to think about that he's kind of like you and agrees with you all the time. But the joy of the one who is actually sovereign, right? Sovereign comes from the old French. Reign, that is the one who is in charge, and sove, like overall. The ruler who is overall, he's not just your king. He's literally king of everything. He's the ruler over all things. And to the extent to which you can connect with that, the sovereignty of God, his glorious rule over everything, that is the fountainhead and the root of Christian joy. Christian joy is connected not, listen, not primarily to the love of God even. Every attribute of God that we take joy in, we take joy in to the extent to which that attribute is glorious and directly connected to the sovereignty of God. Otherwise, what would we believe about the love of God? That it has an end, that it's not beautiful, that it's not glorious. Who cares if God is loving if that love isn't glorious, unfailing, and sovereign? Right, and that's why Peter, knowing Christians were going to enter into all of the struggle and pain and hardship in their belief in the ancient world, he said, listen, in your heart, not just in your mind doctrinally, but in your heart, your soul, you have to set apart Christ, not as your special friend, not as somebody who's really important to you, not as somebody who's named that you'll confess on a survey or something like that, but as Lord. Only if Jesus is set apart inside of you as Lord, the sovereign one, can you then respond to people who ask you about the hope that is in you? Can you face people who will mistreat and abuse you? Can you deal with the difficulties you're going to face every day of your life, right? So you could say that the, the whole message of the book of Ezekiel and the whole message of the Bible can, will point us to the absolute foundation that the glory of God is our spiritual gravity. It is seeing and apprehending the glory of God that puts our spiritual feet on the ground. To the extent to which it's present, 
we will feel our feet solid. It doesn't make it, it's not going to make it easy, and it's gotta, not going to make it simple, but it's going to make your footing solid. Right? Another way, think about it this way. In the whole of the Bible, the phrase, sovereign Lord, God referred to as the sovereign Lord, the ruler over all things, who is the ruler? <laughs> it's a little redundant, but it's meant to push it further, because you could say, you could refer to somebody who is your immediate, the person in charge of you immediately as Lord, but they're not the sovereign Lord. See, because you could say, like, no, Jesus is Lord. Okay, is there anything over him for you, functionally? Is there any way in which Jesus isn't decisive? Because you see, for you, you might think Jesus is Lord, but there is something else that is the sovereign Lord for you. And the thing is, Jesus isn't just Lord. He is the sovereign Lord, right? He is the sovereign reigner, the one who reigns over all things. And in the Bible, it's used 288 times, and 211 of them is in one book, the book of Ezekiel. That's the point in the entire book that God is trying to get across, that Ezekiel is trying to get across. Brothers and sisters, the reason we're in exile, the reason our lives are coming apart, the reason we've been destroyed by our own sin, the reason why we don't know who we are, the reason, the reason is because whatever God was to us, he was not the sovereign Lord. He was something else. And every action that God takes throughout the entire book of Ezekiel, he says why he's doing it, right? In the Bible, 92 times God says, in some situation, something will happen, and then you will know that I am not your special friend, and not somebody who's really important to you, you'll know that I am the Lord. And of those 92 times, 60 of them are in Ezekiel. Right? So you could say it this way. The sovereign God is your spiritual gravity. That the God that you believe in, whatever you think God is, that conceptualization in your mind, as it has to mature over time, increasingly that maturity is related to your ability to conceive of God incredibly greatly as the sovereign one. And then you can frame it like this, that in order to love the sovereignty of God, because here's the thing, naturally as a fleshly person, we hate the sovereignty of God. We hate being told what to do. I mean, think about this for a second. If you are A, created in God's image, okay? You're, you honestly got created in God's image. Imagine you actually believed that. And B, you believe that the fall disordered all of our faculties as human beings. You're made in God's image, and all of our faculties have been disordered. Isn't the first conclusion you would come to is that the one made in God's image that has all their faculties disordered, the first way that would go wrong is we'd want to become gods. Right? We're made in God's image. We're literally referred to in the Psalms as God's small g. Right? And then— our moral capacity to understand that is broken. What's the first thing that's going to happen? We're going to be like, we're gods. I get to say what I want. I can do whatever I want. I can, right? So that Lamech, on like the second page after the fall, he's like, I'm going to get multiple wives, and if you do anything to me, I'm going to kill you. I'm God. And the Bible's full of that. It says that about all of us in every way, in every situation, in the way, but because we're dependent beings, we can't actually be gods. So we turn to things that will get us what we want that we think we can control, and those are called idols. And that's why Calvin could say that the human heart in the state of the fall was an idol factory. So the only way you and I can really love the fact that God is sovereign, that that can be our joy and our strength, and that we can set apart Christ as Lord, truly, right, is if we see that that's a beautiful thing, that it's a good thing, that, and the only way to see that is to see the gloriousness of God, which is what this vision of Ezekiel is all about. Right? I mean, the, 
the whole point of this vision, because this vision is completely unprecedented in the Bible. I mean, people kind of go buck nuts about it. Like, if you read people writing about this, they think that, like, um, Ezekiel was some kind of, like, schizophrenic epileptic. They think that maybe he encountered some kind of, like, new and novel hallucinogenic when he went to Babylon. There are a number of people who have theories about UFOs, that he saw, like, a big mothership, and then the other creatures and the wheels were, like, hovering UFOs. Like, people have come up with all kinds of weird stuff to talk about this because it is truly one of the weirdest, strangest, like, visions in the entire Bible. But here's another way to think about why it might be really unprecedented and how strange and big and descriptive it is. Ezekiel was in a kind of unprecedented situation because the task was so large, right? He was 700 miles from his home with people who had spent 500 years rejecting God. I mean, think about this. Like, some of you are hearing, you're like, listen, I have, listen, that's whole sovereignty of God thing, like, Jesus being decisive in my life, man. Like, I'm like, I'm like 50 years old, and I haven't hardly done that. I mean, like, can I overcome that track record? Well, can the people of God overcome a 500-year track record of not following God? God's still in the game, right? He's still in the game. He's still in the game with you, right? Maybe now. Maybe the rest of the years of your life, God can be Lord. Right? He's—and and here's the thing. In order for God to show the people that he is the Lord, right? And all those 60 times he'll say, then you'll know, right? In most of those cases, he is canceling his previous promises. So think about this. He's trying to bring his people back through what other, the other prophets call essentially a functional divorce. Right? That's, that's hard to do. That you try to enforce your word and help people see the beauty of your leadership— by not fulfilling your, for, your, your past promises and by rejecting the fact that they have any entitlement to them and by punishing them with irrevocable and horrific punishments. That in that context, you want to turn people's hearts around. And, but God says later on, and we'll talk about this in, in future weeks, he's like, the problem is, is that I have spent 500 years saying, I'll stick with you a little longer, a little more grace, right? Let, let's see if, if I'm nicer to you, you'll turn around. For 500 years. And God says, finally, with the exile, he says, listen, me being gracious to you is pushing you further away and driving all the nations away from me. Because what they see is you have, you want nothing to do with me. And you expect me to respond to you lovingly and with grace and to do everything that you want. He's like, what I've I've decided is we have crossed the line We're giving you more grace as anything but empowering your self-destruction and your wickedness. And so I'm completely flipping this, right? And now he's telling Ezekiel, now you go to those people and you tell them they're about to find out that I am the Lord to turn them back to me. I mean, who could possibly have received a worse call from God? Can you imagine? And some of you are like, yeah, I'm a parent. Like, I, I can get it. Right? Or, or like, like some of us have faced that. We're like, in, our, in some relationship, we had to like switch. But like, you've got to believe what you're doing for that person is right. You've got to believe that the choice you make is based on a sovereign idea over their hatred of you, over their rebellion against you, over their— Like if you've got a kid that's like super wayward, and you, you like bring it down, and you take—you strip everything away from— You've got to believe that thing you're doing for them is sovereign over everything they're going to do to you. And you've got to believe in it supremely. And you see, what God knows is that Ezekiel, for the task that's going to be before him for the next several years of his life, he has to believe in God's sovereignty so supremely that it can carry him through. Right? 
In four minutes, I want to go over um, three of the things that are fundamental to seeing the beauty of the glory of God that we don't often talk about, okay? There's lots of things that are part of the glory of God, and they show up in lots of places in the Bible. But there's three, I think, that show up here really powerfully. And the first is that God is strange in his glory. He's very strange. There's, there's wheels intersecting wheels with eyes on them made of crystal, with animals with foreheads pointing in different directions, with multiple levels of wings and calf feet and human arms. And there's like this expanse, and there's lightning, and there's like fire, and there's like burnished bronze, whatever. And then there's like—and then he's like, it's like this and like that, because he can't even really describe what it is. If you read through Ezekiel 1, there's a bunch of places where he doesn't say, it's this. The minute he gets past the— the, um, the platform that the throne of God sits on, he goes from it was this and it was this to it was like this and it was like that and it was like this because it gets vaguer and he's like, I, I can't even totally describe it. Right? And it, part of the reason he can't describe it is because it's weird. It's strange. It's other. It's completely different, which is incredibly important because if God is not very strange and doesn't display himself as strange in your life, you got two problems. One is the, the conception of God you carry around in your mind is probably an idol. Because if, the, if the, your conception of God isn't strange relative to you, it's probably a lot like you, which means how did we get it? Probably. It's probably really just a reflection of you. You're really just transferring yourself into your conception of God, expecting God to be like you, and then wondering why he's not responsive to your needs. But really, your religion is kind of like emotionally looking into a mirror, and God just doesn't like that. And, and we need that. You, you and I need that so desperately to know that God is like irrevocably strange. And like, you're constantly going to be like, what? And every time you read the Bible, you're going to be like, okay, that stuff I all agree with. But you get deeply contradicted in your way of looking at things. And like, when you come to church, like, you should get offended like really consistently. Like, if I preach the scriptures and you actually listen to them, you should get like, your blood pressure should rise with the offense that you experience at least once a month, if not every week. Like, I remember, like, like, we've had people here who've said stuff that not everybody agreed with, and maybe it wasn't all biblical, and some of it was, and we just didn't want to hear it. And, like, people are like, well, that, I mean, I don't want to listen to that. Like, you can't listen to it? Like, believing in the strange God? Like, you're going to get contradicted. It's going to happen. And sometimes you'll consider it, and you'll realize it's of men and not of God, and you have to let the thing pass. Like we used to say in the South, you eat the watermelon, and you spit out the seeds, Right? Every adult mature person has to do that because nobody's perfect, including me and everyone else, and I'm not close to perfect. Right? The second issue is this. I, I've heard so many non-believers say that they expect heaven to be boring. Right? Like, in some ways, like, I, well, you know, heaven is going to be—there's going to be streets of gold. Okay, that, like, that's—like, that's affluent, but is it interesting? Like, my hope about heaven is not that, like, it's going to have the ripest mangoes and streets of gold. Like, like my hope is that it's going to be super weird. <laughs> like, there's going to be animals with, like, four heads pointing in different directions and, like, eyes on stuff and, like, trees that produce fruit, like, every month. And it's, like, different on each branch. And, like, I don't know how the leaves are for the healing of the nations or what any of some of this stuff means. But, like, I am banking on weird. Listen, I haven't taken any hallucinogenics. Like, none. But I'm hoping my whole eternity is like one. Like, I, I've got no issue with weird. Right? Some of you, like, you're kind of like, like, you literally go to church because you don't want to hear somebody, like, speaking in tongues because that's too weird. Listen, heaven is going to be way weirder than that. It's going to be weird. It's going to have, like, I might be there. Like, it's going to be crazy. And so it's important both to realize, like, 
part of the reason heaven's going to be awesome is we're going to be infinitely discovering new beauties and strange twists in the glory of God. And the reason that is is because he's not like us, because he's incredibly weird and incredibly complex and incredibly strange. And it, it both keeps us on our guard to create in God who's just like ourselves, which is an idol that will destroy our faith. So it, that view protects us, but it also can inspire us because like we worship an incredibly strange God. That's so great. Right? All right, I'll let you bake on that for a little while. Okay. The second is, God is complicated in his glory. He's not just strange. His strangeness is incredibly complicated. Like, think about, like, all the levels of complexity. Like, go ahead and read it through and just, like, write down every level of complexity this afternoon. Right? There's a storm. And then the storm is flashing lights. And the flashing lights are four creatures. And then the four creatures are touching each other. And those four creatures have four heads. And those, and those four creatures with four heads have calf feet and human hands. And those four creatures, wings are touching. And they're— and, right, and then there's this, and then there's lady between them, and then there's, and then there's wheels, and the wheels have eyes, and they're made of crystallite, and then there's this thing, and then there's the thing, and then there's the thing, and then there's, it's like, it's like, like, it just keeps getting more and more complicated. It's one of the reasons why, like, a lot of modern secular people just say, they don't want to think about angels. They just don't want to think about angels, and they don't want to think about demons. Why? If you believe one spiritual being exists, why would there be a problem with, like, there being lots of different spiritual beings, and especially if God is strange, why wouldn't there be, like, 50,000 different kinds of spiritual beings? Right? And the answer is this. It ain't clean, man. It's not like, like secularly, if you have like an anodyne version of like a powerful God, the first mover or whatever, and then you have us, and like that stays pretty clean. You start getting like angels, that just feels weird, and it's like, it starts getting more complicated. Like, wait, so when God commands something, he doesn't just like snap his fingers? Does he like tell an angel? And like, how many layers does he tell an angel that tells an angel that tells an angel, and who does it? Like, that's all like, why are they flying around? Why would they need wings? Aren't they like interspatial, like galactic whatevers? And like, how does the whoa, 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 whoa? And the answer is, who knows? And he doesn't have to tell you. Why would he tell you? Angels do things for your good. He sends them. He has many layers and lots of creatures in his generosity. He's made many, who knows how many different kinds of conscious beings in all kinds of places. I mean, if he wants to have like Narnia, 100,000 different dimensions that are completely different from earth, that all have different salvation stories, all of which he's given sentience to, the capacity to apprehend his glory for eternal joy, what's wrong with that? Who cares? If there are aliens, who cares? Right? God is way more complicated. And the reason why that's incredible—like, literally, I, this is kind of funny. I was looking for synonyms for complicated—whoops. And one of the synonyms for complicated was literally wheels within wheels, <laughs> which is from Ezekiel. It's literally a saying for complicated, okay? Now, um, one of the reasons this is so important is because many of the narrow conceptualizations that are simplistic and dumb that na- cause people to walk away from Christian faith— our conceptions that, generally speaking, want to treat questions about God's being as simplistic enough that there's this obvious answer, if A, then B, one-stage thinking. And we're so clever, aren't we? So like, for example, like, if God is imminent, then why is he hidden? If God is good, why is there any evil in the world? If God is compassionate, why does he allow suffering? Right? If God said he was returning, why hasn't he come back yet? If God says that if we believe in him and honor him and live in a godly way, that he will bless us, then why are people who believe in God struggling and hurting, right? If God says he judges the wicked, why are there so many people who are obviously wicked who are existing in impunity? And like, if God is a revealing God, like God is a speaking and showing God, like the Bible says, why is there so much religious confusion, not just throughout the world generally, but even when people call themselves Christians particularly? Right? Don't those all sound like clever questions? Isn't the question most of the people you know who lost their faith on that board? 
fallacy in all of it is this is always just one step first stage thinking as though nothing else contextualizationally like connects with it and makes it more complicated than that. It's like it's really that simple. God's angels have four heads, right? Think about, here's a, let me give you an example. So here's a good small group icebreaker. If you had a small group this week, this, ask this question. When were you wrong because you didn't know what you didn't know? When were you wrong because you didn't know what you didn't know? Right? Like, a lot of us are professionals in here, either blue-collar professionals or white-collar professionals, and you know a lot about a particular thing. And you talk to people all the time who try to do your job, and the, the problem with them doing your job is they don't know what they don't know. They're like, well, I thought I could change the plumbing like this, and you're like, dude, gravity doesn't work that way. Like, you have to have this percentage incline or the poop goes back up, right? Or like, oh, you like Googled your symptoms and now you're a doctor. Like, I mean, I'm sure like some of you have felt that way. Like, this is, and, but you don't know what you don't know, right? Let me give you an example of this. Um, in the 1950s through the early 1960s, China under Mao tried to do their great leap forward. And part of the great leap forward was that they want to have more food for all the poor people in China. And so they decided they were going to destroy this, this like pernicious, pervasive creature, the Eurasian swallow or sparrow, because it ate grain and it ate fruits. And these were for the Chinese people and they belonged to the state to be distributed all according to their need, right? And so they decided they were going to kill these four critters and one of them was the Eurasian sparrow. So they wiped the stink out of the Eurasian sparrow. I mean, they basically created like full continental extinction for this thing in a couple of years, right? And then the people of China ate in plenty forever. Except for the fact that the Eurasian sparrow ate a lot of insects too. It actually ate way more insects than it ate grain or fruit. And so one of the things it ate was locusts. And it was the main creature in the entire ecosystem of China that kept the locust population under control. So when you killed the sparrows, you got billions and billions and billions of locusts that ate huge portions of the grain and fruits. And so that—and so then, what do you have to do? Well, now you have to kill them all with pesticides. So you have to dump poison everywhere in your country. And so you get unintended consequence upon unintended consequence upon unintended consequences. The great fun of the Great Leap Forward was that between 15 and 45 million Chinese human beings made in the image of God died of starvation. Right? Like, everybody wants to think that problem A can be directly solved by action B. Everybody wants to believe that, and it's almost never true. Most solutions to problems make things worse, often considerably worse, and create unintended consequences that we did not expect. Probably because we weren't looking for them, because we just thought you could fix things like that. And the more complicated things become, the more impossible it is to have direct discovery. That's one of the reasons why hard sciences, we've discovered so much more than soft sciences. And oftentimes in the soft sciences, like sociology and economics and so on, we believe in these like ridiculously stupid things for like 35 years, then we realize it's all wrong. And that doesn't happen very often in math. Is it because mathematicians are like superiorly objective? Well, mm, yeah, uh, depending on who you ask, I suppose. But the point is, is that there, some things are simpler than other things. Some things have fewer, like, fields interconnecting. Math is just math. 
And then you add some stuff to it, and you've got physics. So physics is a little more complicated than math. And then chemistry is a little complicated still. And then you've got biology, right? And then psychology is all that stuff all mixed together with the human mind. And then you've got all that work together among people. So you've got sociology. And then you have all the incentives of how they trade and develop a society. So you've got economics. And then you've got, well, how, why would, what's the right way to do that? Like, you can even talk that way. And then you've got morality. And then if you put all that together, you've got philosophy. And then if you put all that together, and you try to relate it to the divine being, how he's speaking, spoken and shown himself, and as observed in creation, you've got theology. Now think about that for a second. Like, how simple is it to sort out theology? And are you sure that if God was loving, there wouldn't be any suffering in the world? Are you sure he's not doing anything else? Are you sure there aren't complicating factors? Are you sure that suffering can't be used redemptively in a way that other things can't be? Are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure that you know what you don't know? And you're like, well, then how can we know anything? I, doesn't that just bring us back to the place where we don't know anything about God? It, it could— if God had not chosen relentlessly to speak and show himself in Revelation. Right? If, like, wisdom is when you take all the complication and you sort it all out and you come to axiomatic truths that are true even in the complicated world in the vast majority of time. Right? And that's basically what the Bible is made up of. Wisdom. That's why it says in Psalm 19 that if a simple person that is a not-too-bright person— reads the Bible, the precepts of the Lord make the simple person wise. You get the simplicity on the far side of complexity, even if you could never process the complexity. Think about that. All of the complicated glory of God, he realizes that we can see it and get lost in it, and yet still, he then speaks through it and teaches us what we have, the conclusions that we can just apply if we will dare to trust the glorious sovereign one. Right? And lastly and quickly, God is magnificent in his glory. If you look at how, how Ezekiel reacts to God, it says he falls face down. And then in chapter 3, after all of the revelation is over, at this, this version of it, right, this event, it says that he sits for a week among his people, silent and overwhelmed. Right? I mean, that, that ought to tell us something about the emotional effect of apprehending the glory of God, especially relative to its magnificence. Really quick, really quickly, the things that are displayed about the magnificence of God is his, his that he's, God's everywhere. Like we call this omnipotence, or omnipresence, or omniscience, that God is consciously everywhere present. He doesn't just know all true facts. He is psychologically present everywhere. And he has the capacity to make his power present everywhere. Right? He's, he's everywhere. The way this comes across in this passage is that whole vision of the glory of God, you know what that is? Right? That's the Ark of the Covenant. Right? Right? The, the forehead creatures are bearing a platform on which there's the seraphim, but on which God is enthroned in all his glory, able to be moved. Right? And the Israelites had the Ark of the Covenant. They had to put poles through it, and they had to carry it. And they imagined that God's glory rested upon the Ark of the Covenant. That was in Israel, in the temple. That's where the glory of God was. It's not supposed to be 700 miles to the east in Babylon. Yet there it is. Because God is everywhere present. You're not outside of sight. Now that's terrifying if you will not repent and turn to him. He sees everything. He knows everything. There's nothing that could be held back from him. Nothing that could be shielded from his knowledge. He knows everything about you. Everything you've ever done. Everything you will ever do. Every terrible thought you've ever thought. He knows everything, right? And so if you don't enter into his grace, that's a really terrifying thought, right? But if you feel lost, like you're not good enough, like God has got to be through with you, 
that you're too small and insignificant a person for him to care, that the actual outworking of your life and the development of your human soul doesn't really matter, then it's really comforting. There's no limit to God's bandwidth, and so there's no, there's no concentration of his attention anywhere that could ever take his attention off of you. Right? It's like the difference between me watching my four kids when they were little and my wife. Okay? I can watch—I'm a man. I watch one kid at a time. Okay? That's it. One kid at a time. And my wife is literally watching all four at a time. Doesn't matter which one's doing it, she knows where the other one is. Right? And what she can do with four, God can do and does do with billions. Right? The second thing is that God is complete. Everything that is good, that can be good about God, is true of him. He has an absolutely full character. He has all the good attributes of personhood. One of the ways this is displayed is in the four creatures. Why the four heads? What the heck's going on with that? It's because if you work through the Bible and you work through where, how these different animals were conceived in, in the ancient world, especially in the Middle East, the man stands for wisdom and knowledge. The lion for magnific magnificence and kingliness. The ox always for strength and power. And the eagle— for comfort and care. Now that may sound strange, but the particular subspecies of eagles that live in Israel, um, the way they train their young to fly is the mother actually pushes the young out of the nest while the male swoops under the nest ready to catch the eaglet if it falls and doesn't fly. So that it actually catches the eaglet on its back and then lifts it back up. That is, if you've read the verse in the Bible, you've carried me and lifted me up on eagle's wings. Right? Because people had seen that, like, from time to time, or they knew it happened, right? And that the eagle, right, if you think about—if you've read the Bible, the places where eagles are mentioned, it's like, it's soaring, it's being lifted up. Like, if you look at these kind of birds, right, especially in the late afternoon when the heat is rising off the earth, and they just put out their wings, and the, the heat just lifts them up, right? And that God is just lifted up effortlessly above all things, right? But he also lifts us up. He's caring and loving, and he is complete in those ways, right? He sees everything with the wheels intersecting the wheel. He sees in all directions, moves in all directions. He's, he has every attribute of goodness, right? And then lastly and quickly is that God is expressive, right? He could have never spoken to human beings. He could have remained um, infinitely complex and completely removed. But God shows that even after 500 years of being attacked, hated, despised, he is still the speaking and showing God. He is relentless. You're like, well, is God's love unconditional? What is that? Like, no, God's love is unfailing. It never stops, right? It has condition. Condition of faith, condition of repentance. There's conditions on God's love, but there's no stopping in its pursuit of us. It is unrelenting. And so even in exile, even in divorce, as he calls it, the breaking of his own covenant with his adulterous wife, so to speak, and throwing her out, he's still not done with her. He's never done with her. He's still speaking and showing and reaching and calling and inviting and hoping and sending such that people could be drawn back to him. Right? He's the expressive God, especially expressive to those who must hear his voice so as to be redeemed. Right? And okay, this is actually the last one. It, and, and, and like, I think it's really important. God is intense. Like, I know there's some people that, I, you know, this, this preaching, oh, I just wish God would just relax. Okay, listen. Meaning creates passion and intensity. Okay? I mean, think about, like, young people, and they get to know somebody, and they're like, oh, I like this boy. He's so great. Like, right? And then you, like, you kind of, like, you fall in love, or you, like, get all super infatuated, right? Like, wh why do you feel that way? Right? And here's why. Because you think the relationship means something. That's why it happens. 
they're going to be the one. They really like me. They're very special. Like, like all that stuff kind of flutters up in you. And like, because you think it means something, it becomes more intense. You become more passionate about it. It's not because of how attractive they are. There's plenty of other attractive people. You feel that way about that person. It's the connection, the bonding, the meaning that creates the passion intensity. If you are a being who sees the meaning of everything, sees the purpose of everything, understands the nature of everything, and what's at stake in everything, everything means something, then you are a profoundly passionate and intense being. There's no way to get rid of that. You can't put it aside. It would be right to put it aside. That's why scripture says our God is a consuming fire. There's lightning flashing between the angels. Everything's on fire. Why is everything on fire? Is it because God wants to burn us alive? If he wanted to burn us alive, we would be burned alive already. Okay? That's not the point. The point is the burning intensity of the holiness of God as a glorious thing about God. And you need to stop hating it. And you need to embrace it for yourself. God has that kind of intensity against your sin, but also in love towards you, and in his passion to teach you to come into his ways, and in his passion to bring you into his strange and glorious heaven, and all these other capacities and things that will happen. And so lastly, um, there is um, one thing that we should, I should say before we just end here, is that's that the strangest, most complicated, and most magnificent vision of God is God become flesh. Like as, as crazy and unprecedented as the vision of Ezekiel 1 is, there was a crazier one that literally became permanent flesh that walked among us, that was incredibly strange to the people he interacted with, who was complicated in ways that people didn't want to deal with, and who was magnificent in everything that he did. Right? And he became the new vision of the glory so that John 1 could say, and John's gospel basically tracks the flow of Ezekiel. That's why it's so different than the synoptic gospels. He loves Ezekiel, and he tracks what goes on there. And in the very first chapter of his book, he says, we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who has displayed grace and truth. So as we sing now, as you discuss in small groups, as we try to think about how we're going to apply this book and learn from it, as you do your devotions through it, I want you to understand that um, so much of this is laid out to the future strange one that would come. That Jesus is, the, is not only the true greater vision, as we'll see Ezekiel being called the Son of Man, different than anyone else in the Bible, for the Son of Man who would come in Jesus the Christ. There's an incredible amount laid out here where God is showing us that it is in Christ that we experience these things. God, as we, um, as we sing right now, and as we turn our hearts to you, and as we think about these things, and as we try to give ourselves over to them in hope, Please ground us in an increasing vision of your glory. Please help us to repent and enjoy your absolute sovereignty as God and to increasingly cherish it in all its strangeness, in all its complexity, but also in all the ways that it's marvelous and magnificent. And help it to make it so that you are not weightless to us, but that you are always and everywhere decisive in our lives. In obedience, that we would always do what's right, that we know according to conscience, but also an encouragement that when we're discouraged and we're fearful and when we feel attacked, you being with us would be decisive for our encouragement and our affirmation. Help us to be made safe and whole and different in you. And please mature the vision we have of you in our minds. In Jesus' name, amen.